Section 33 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Bennett. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 9, Section 33. Excerpts from Life on the Mississippi. By Mark Twain. The Child of Calamity from Life on the Mississippi, copyright 1883 by James R. Osgood and Company. By way of illustrating keelboat talk and manners, and that now departed and hardly remembered raft life, I will throw in, in this place, a chapter from a book which I have been working at by fits and starts during the past five or six years and may possibly finish in the course of five or six more. The book is a story which details some passages in the life of an ignorant village boy, Huck Finn, son of the town drunkard of my time out west there. He has run away from his persecuting father and from a persecuting good widow who wishes to make a nice truth-telling respectable boy of him, and with him a slave of the widow's has also escaped. They've found a fragment of a lumber raft, it is high water and dead summertime, and are floating down the river by night and hiding in the willows by day, bound for Cairo, whence the Negro will seek freedom in the heart of the free states. But in a fog they pass Cairo without knowing it. By and by they begin to suspect the truth, and Huck Finn is persuaded to end the dismal suspense by swimming down to a huge raft which they have seen in the distance ahead of them, creeping aboard under cover of the darkness and gathering the needed information by eavesdropping. But you know a young person can't wait very well when he is impatient to find a thing out. We talked it over, and by and by Jim said it was such a black night now that it wouldn't be no risk to swim down to the big raft and crawl aboard and listen. They would talk about Cairo because they would be calculating to go ashore there for a spree, maybe, or... Anyway, they would send boats ashore to buy whiskey or fresh meat or something. Jim had a wonderful level head for a nigger. He could most always start a good plan when you wanted one. I stood up and shook my rags off and jumped into the river and struck out for the raft's light. By and by, when I got down nearly to her, I eased up and went slow and cautious. But everything was all right, nobody at the sweeps. So I swum down along the raft till I was most abreast the campfire in the middle. Then I crawled aboard and inched along and got in amongst some bundles of shingles on the weather side of the fire. There was thirteen men there. They was the watch on deck, of course, and a mighty rough-looking lot, too. They had a jug and tin cups, and they kept the jug moving. One man was singing, roaring, you might say, and it wasn't a nice song, for a parlor, anyway. He roared through his nose and strung out the last word of every line very long. When he was done, they all fetched a kind of engine war whoop, and then another was sung. It begun, There was a woman in our Towden, and our Towden did dwell, dwell. She loved her husband dearly, but another man twist as weddle. Singing to relu, 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 relay. She loved her husband dearly, but another man twist as well. And so on, fourteen verses. It was kind of poor, and when he was going to start on the next verse, one of them said it was the tune the old cow died on, and another one said, I'll give us a rest. And another one told him to take a walk, 
They made fun of him till he got mad and jumped up and began to cuss the crowd and said he could lamb any thief in the lot. They was all about to make a break for him, but the biggest man there jumped up and says, Sit where you are, gentlemen. Leave him to me. He's my meat. Then he jumped up in the air three times and cracked his heels together every time. He flung off a buckskin coat that was all hung with fringes and says, You lay there till the chawin' up's done, and flung his hat down, which was all over ribbons, and says, You lay there till his sufferings is over. Then he jumped up in the air and cracked his heels together again and shouted out, Whoop! I'm the old original iron-jawed, brass-mounted, copper-bellied course maker from the wilds of Arkansas. Look at me. I'm the man they call sudden death and general desolation, sired by a hurricane, damned by an earthquake, half-brother to the cholera, nearly related to the smallpox on the mother's side. Look at me. I take nineteen alligators and a barrel of whiskey for breakfast when I'm in robust health, and a bushel of rattlesnakes and a dead body when I'm ailing. I split the everlasting rocks with my glance, and I squench the thunder when I speak. Whoop! Stand back and give me the room according to my strength. Blood's my natural drink, and the wails of the dying is music to my ear. Cast your eye on me, gentlemen, and lay low and hold your breath, for I'm about to turn myself loose. All the time he was getting this off, he was shaking his head and looking fierce and kind of swelling around in a little circle, tucking up his wristbands and now and then straightening up and beating his breast with his fist, saying, Look at me, gentlemen. When he got through, he jumped up and cracked his heels together three times and let off a roaring, Whoop! I'm the bloodiest son of a wild cat that lives. Then the man that had started the row tilted his old slouch hat down over his right eye. Then he bent stooping forward with his back sagged and his south end sticking out far and his fists a-shoving out and drawing in in front of him and so went around in a little circle about three times swelling himself up and breathing hard. Then he straightened and jumped up and cracked his heels together three times before he lit again that made them cheer, and he begun to shout like this, Whoop! Bow your neck and spread, for the kingdom of sorrows a-coming. Hold me down to earth, for I feel my powers a-working. Whoop! I'm a child of sin. Don't let me get a start. Smoked glass here for all. Don't attempt to look at me with the naked eye, gentlemen. When I'm playful, I use the meridians of longitude and the parallels of latitude for a sane and drag the Atlantic Ocean for whales. I scratch my head with the lightning and purr myself to sleep with the thunder. When I'm cold, I bile the Gulf of Mexico and bathe in it. When I'm hot, I fan myself with an equinoctial storm. When I'm thirsty, I reach up and suck a cloud dry like a sponge. When I range the earth hungry, famine follows in my tracks. Whoop! Bow your neck and spread. I put my hand on the sun's face and make it not in the earth. I bite a piece out of the moon and hurry the seasons. I shake myself and crumble the mountains. Contemplate me through leather. Don't use the naked eye. I'm the man with the petrified heart and biler iron vows. The massacre of isolated communities is the pastime of my idle moments, the destruction of nationalities, the serious business of my life. 
The boundless vastness of the great American desert is my enclosed property, and I bury my dead on my own premises. He jumped up and cracked his heels together three times before he lit. They cheered him again, and as he came down, he shouted out, Whoop! Bow your neck and spread, for the pet child of calamities a coming. Then the other one went to swelling around and blowing again, the first one, the one they called Bob. Next, the child of calamity chipped in again, bigger than ever. Then they both got at it at the same time, swelling round and round each other and punching their fists most into each other's faces and whooping and jawing like engines. Then Bob called the child names and the child called him names back again. Next, Bob called him a heap rougher names and the child come back at him with the very worst kind of language. Next, Bob knocked the child's hat off, and the child picked it up and kicked Bob's ribbon he had about six foot. Bob went and got it and said, never mind, this weren't going to be the last of this thing, because he was a man that never forgot and never forgive, and so the child better look out, for there was a time a-coming, just as sure as he was a living man, that he would have to answer to him with the best blood in his body. The child said no man was willinger than he was for that time to come, and he would give Bob fair warning, now, never to cross his path again, for he could never rest till he had waded in his blood, for such was his nature, though he was sparing him now on account of his family, if he had one. Both of them was edging away in different directions, growling and shaking their heads, and going on about what they was going to do, but a little black-whiskered chap skipped up and says, Come back here, you couple of chicken-livered cowards, and I'll thrash the two of you. And he done it, too. He snatched them, he jerked them this way and that, he booted them around, he knocked them sprawling faster than they could get up. Why, it weren't two minutes till they begged like dogs, and how the other lot did yell and laugh and clap their hands all the way through, and shout, Sail him, corpse-maker! Hi, Adam again, child of calamity. Bully for you, little Davy. Well, it was a perfect powwow for a while. Bob and the child had red noses and black eyes when they got through. Little Davy made them own up that they was sneaks and cowards and not fit to eat with a dog or drink with a nigger. Then Bob and the child shook hands with each other, very solemn, and said they had always respected each other and was willing to let bygones be bygones. So then they washed their faces in the river, and just then there was a loud order to stand by for a crossing, and some of them went forward to man the sweeps there, and the rest went aft to handle the after-sweeps. A Steamboat Landing at a Small Town From Life on the Mississippi, copyright 1883 by James R. Osgood and Company Once a day a cheap gaudy packet arrived upward from St. Louis and another downward from Keokuk. Before these events, the day was glorious with expectancy. After them, the day was a dead and empty thing. Not only the boys, but the whole village felt this. After all these years, I can picture that old time to myself now, just as it was then. The white town drowsing in the sunshine of a summer's morning. The streets empty, or pretty nearly so. One or two clerks sitting in front of the Water Street stores with their splint-bottom chairs tilted back against the wall, chins on breasts, hats slouched over their faces asleep, with shingle shavings enough around to show what broke them down, 
a sow and a litter of pigs loafing along the sidewalk, doing a good business in watermelon rinds and seeds, two or three lonely little freight piles scattered about on the levee, a pile of skids on the slope of the stone-paved wharf, and the fragrant town drunkard asleep in the shadow of them, two or three wood flats at the head of the wharf, but nobody to listen to the peaceful lapping of the wavelets against them. The great Mississippi, the majestic, the magnificent Mississippi, rolling its mile-wide tide along, shining in the sun, the dense forest away on the other side, the point above the town and the point below, bounding the river glimpse and turning it into a sort of sea, and withal a very still and brilliant and lonely one. Presently a film of dark smoke appears above one of those remote points. Instantly a negro drayman, famous for his quick eye and prodigious voice, lifts up the cry, Steamboat a-comin'! And the scene changes. The town drunkard stirs, the clerks wake up, and a furious clatter of drays follows. Every house and store pours out a human contribution, and all in a twinkling the dead town is alive and moving. Drays, carts, men, boys, all go hurrying from many quarters to a common center, the wharf. Assembled there, the people fasten their eyes upon the coming boat, as upon a wonder they are seeing for the first time. And the boat is rather a handsome sight, too. She is long and sharp and trim and pretty. She has two tall, fancy-top chimneys with a gilded device of some kind swung between them. A fanciful pilot house, all glass and gingerbread, perched on top of the Texas deck behind them. The paddle boxes are gorgeous with a picture or with gilded rays above the boat's name. The boiler deck, the hurricane deck, and the Texas deck are fenced and ornamented with clean white railings. There's a flag gallantly flying from the jackstaff. The furnace doors are open and the fires glaring bravely. The upper decks are black with passengers. The captain stands by the big bell, calm and posing, the envy of all. Great volumes of the blackest smoke are rolling and tumbling out of the chimneys, a husbanded grandeur created with a bit of pitch pine just before arriving at a town. The crew are grouped on the forecastle, the broad stage is run far out over the port bow, and an envied deckhand stands picturesquely on the end of it with a coil of rope in his hand. The pent steam is screaming through the gauge cock, the captain lifts his hand, a bell rings, the wheels stop, then they turn back, churning the water to a foam, and the steamer is at rest. Then such a scramble as there is to get aboard and to get ashore, and to take in freight and to discharge freight, all at one and the same time, and such a yelling and cursing as the mates facilitated all with. Ten minutes later, the steamer is under way again, with no flag on the jackstaff, and no black smoke issuing from the chimneys. After ten more minutes, the town is dead again, and the town drunkard asleep by the skids once more. The High River and a Phantom Pilot From Life on the Mississippi Copyright 1883 by James R. Osgood and Company During this big rise, these small fry craft were an intolerable nuisance. We were running chute after chute, a new world to me, and if there was a particularly cramped place in a chute, we would be pretty sure to meet a broadhorn there, and if he failed to be there, we would find him in a still worse locality, namely the head of a chute on the shoal water, and then there would be no end of profane cordialities exchanged. Sometimes in the big river, 
when we would be feeling our way cautiously along through a fog, a deep hush would suddenly be broken by yells and a clamor of tin pans, and all in an instant a log raft would appear vaguely through the webby veil, close upon us, and then we did not wait to swap knives, but snatched our engine bells out by the roots and piled on all the steam we had to scramble out of the way. One doesn't hit a rock or a solid log raft with a steamboat when he can get excused. You will hardly believe it, but many steamboat clerks always carried a large assortment of religious tracts with them in those old departed steamboating days. Indeed they did. Twenty times a day we would be cramping up around a bar while a string of these small fry rascals were drifting down into the head of the bend away above and beyond us a couple of miles. Now a skiff would dart away from one of them and come fighting its laborious way across the desert of water. It would ease all in the shadow of our forecastle, and the panting oarsmen would shout, "'Give me your paper!' as the skiff drifted swiftly astern. The clerk would throw over a file of New Orleans journals. If these were picked up without comment, you might notice that now a dozen other skiffs had been drifting down upon us without saying anything. You understand they had been waiting to see how number one was going to fare. Number one, making no comment, all the rest would bend their oars and come on now, and as fast as they came the clerk would heave over neat bundles of religious tracts tied to shingles. The amount of hard swearing which twelve packages of religious literature will command when impartially divided up among twelve raftsmen crews who have pulled a heavy skiff two miles on a hot day to get them is simply incredible. As I have said, the big rise brought a new world under my vision. By the time the river was over its banks, we had forsaken our old paths and were hourly climbing over bars that had stood ten feet out of water before. We were shaving stumpy shores like that at the foot of Madrid Bend, which I had always seen avoided before. We were clattering through chutes like that of 82, where the opening at the foot was an unbroken wall of timber till our nose was almost at the very spot. Some of these chutes were utter solitudes. The dense, untouched forest overhung both banks of the crooked little crack, and one could believe that human creatures had never intruded there before. The swinging grapevines, the grassy nooks and vistas glimpsed as we swept by, the flowering creepers waving their red blossoms from the tops of dead trunks, and all the spendthrift richness of the forest foliage were wasted and thrown away there. The chutes were lovely places to steer in. They were deep, except at the head. The current was gentle. Under the points, the water was absolutely dead, and the invisible banks so bluff that where the tender willow thickets projected, you could bury your boat's broadside in them as you tore along, and then you seemed fairly to fly. Behind other islands, we found wretched little farms and wretcheder little log cabins, there were crazy rail fences sticking a foot or two above the water, with one or two jeans-clad, chills-racked, yellow-faced male miserables roosting on the top rail, elbows on knees, jaws in hands, grinding tobacco and discharging the result at floating chips through crevices left by lost teeth, while the rest of the family and the few farm animals were huddled together in an empty wood flat riding at her moorings close at hand. In this flatboat, the family would have to cook and eat and sleep for a lesser or greater number of days, or possibly weeks, until the river should fall two or three feet and let them get back to their log cabin 
and their chills again, chills being a merciful provision of an all-wise providence to enable them to take exercise without exertion. And this sort of watery camping out was a thing which these people were rather liable to be treated to a couple of times a year. By the December rise out of the Ohio and the June rise out of the Mississippi, and yet these were kindly dispensations, for they at least enabled the poor things to rise from the dead now and then and look upon life when a steamboat went by. They appreciated the blessing, too, for they spread their mouths and eyes wide open and made the most of these occasions. Now what could these banished creatures find to do to keep from dying of the blues during the low-water season? Once in one of these lovely island shoots, we found our course completely bridged by a great fallen tree, this will serve to show how narrow some of the chutes were. The passengers had an hour's recreation in a virgin wilderness while the boat hands chopped the bridge away, for there was no such thing as turning back, you comprehend. From Cairo to Baton Rouge, when the river is over its banks, you have no particular trouble in the night, for the thousand-mile wall of dense forest that guards the two banks all the way is only gapped with a farm or woodyard opening at intervals, and so you can't get out of the river much easier than you could get out of a fenced lane. But from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, it is a different matter. The river is more than a mile wide and very deep, as much as 200 feet in places. Both banks, for a good deal over a 100 miles, are shorn of their timber and bordered by continuous sugar plantations, with only here and there a scattering sapling or row of ornamental china trees. The timber is shorn off clear to the rear of the plantations from two to four miles. When the first frost threatens to come, the planters snatch off their crops in a hurry. When they have finished grinding the cane, they form the refuse of the stalks, which they call bagasse, and set fire to them, though in other sugar countries the bagasse is used for fuel in the furnaces of the sugar mills. Now the piles of damp bagasse burn slowly and smoke like Satan's own kitchen. An embankment ten or fifteen feet high guards both banks of the Mississippi all the way down that lower end of the river, and this embankment is set back from the edge of the shore from ten to perhaps a hundred feet according to circumstances, say thirty or forty feet is a general thing. Fill that whole region with an impenetrable gloom of smoke from a hundred miles of burning bagasse piles when the river is over the banks and turn a steamboat loose along there at midnight and see how she will feel. And see how you will feel, too. You find yourself away out in the midst of a vague, dim sea that is shoreless, that fades out and loses itself in the murky distances. For you cannot discern the thin rib of embankment, and you are always imagining you see a straggling tree when you don't. The plantations themselves are transformed by the smoke and look like a part of the sea, all through your watch you are tortured with the exquisite misery of uncertainty. You hope you are keeping in the river, but you do not know. All that you are sure about is that you are likely to be within six feet of the bank and destruction when you think you are a good half mile from shore. And you are sure also that if you chance suddenly to fetch up against the embankment and topple your chimneys overboard, you will have the small comfort of knowing that it is about what you were expecting to do. One of the great Vicksburg packets darted out into a sugar plantation one night at such a time and had to stay there a week. But there was no novelty about it. It had often been done before. I thought I had finished this chapter, but I wish to add a curious thing while it is in my mind, 
It is only relevant in that it is connected with piloting. There used to be an excellent pilot on the river, a Mr. X, who was a somnambulist. It was said that if his mind was troubled about a bad piece of river, he was pretty sure to get up and walk in his sleep and do strange things. He was once fellow pilot for a trip or two with George Ealer on a great New Orleans passenger packet. During a considerable part of the first trip, George was uneasy, but got over it by and by as X seemed content to stay in his bed when asleep. Late one night, the boat was approaching Helena, Arkansas. The water was low and the crossing above the town in a very blind and tangled condition. X had seen the crossing since Ealer had, and as the night was particularly drizzly, sullen, and dark, Ealer was considering whether he had not better have X called to assist in running the place when the door opened and X walked in. Now on very dark nights, light is a deadly enemy to piloting. You are aware that if you stand in a lighted room on such a night, you cannot see things in the street to any purpose. But if you put out the lights and stand in the gloom, you can make out objects in the street pretty well. So on very dark nights, pilots do not smoke. They allow no fire in the pilot house stove if there is a crack which can allow the least ray to escape. They order the furnaces to be curtained with huge tarpaulins and the skylights to be closely blinded. Then no light whatsoever issues from the boat. The undefinable shape that now entered the pilot house had Mr. X's voice. This said, Let me take her, George. I've seen this place since you have, and it is so crooked that I reckon I can run it myself easier than I could tell you how to do it. It is kind of you, and I swear I am willing. I haven't got another drop of perspiration left in me. I've been spinning around and around the wheel like a squirrel. It is so dark I can't tell which way she is swinging till she is coming around like a whirligig. So Eler took a seat on the bench, panting and breathless. The black phantom assumed the wheel without saying anything, steadied the waltzing steamer with a turn or two, and then stood at ease, coaxing her a little to this side and then to that, as gently and sweetly as if the time had been noonday. When Eler observed this marvel of steering, he wished he had not confessed. He stared and wondered, and finally said, Well, I thought I knew how to steer a steamboat, but that was another mistake of mine. X said nothing, but went serenely on with his work. He rang for the leads, he rang to slow down the steam, he worked the boat carefully and neatly into invisible marks, then stood at the center of the wheel and peered blandly out into the blackness, fore and aft, to verify his position, as the lead shoaled more and more, he stopped the engines entirely, and the dead silence and suspense of drifting followed. When the shoalest water was struck, he cracked on the steam, carried her handsomely over, and then began to work her warily into the next system of shoal marks. The same patient, heedful use of leads and engines followed. The boat slipped through without touching bottom and entered upon the third and last intricacy of the crossing. Imperceptibly she moved through the gloom, crept by inches into her marks, drifted tediously till the shoalest water was cried, and then, under a tremendous head of steam, went swinging over the reef and away into deep water and safety. Eler let his long pent breath pour out in a great relieving sigh and said, "'That's the sweetest piece of piloting that was ever done on the Mississippi River. I wouldn't have believed it could be done if I hadn't seen it. There was no reply, and he added, "'Just hold her five minutes longer, partner, and let me run down and get a cup of coffee.' 
A minute later, Ehler was biting into a pie down in the Texas and comforting himself with coffee. Just then, the night watchman happened in and was about to happen out again when he noticed Ehler and exclaimed, "'Who's at the wheel, sir?' X. "'Dart for the pilot house, quicker than lightning!' The next moment, both men were flying up the pilot house companionway, three steps at a jump. Nobody there. The great steamer was whistling down the middle of the river at her own sweet will. The watchman shot out of the place again. Ehler seized the wheel, set the engine back with power, and held his breath while the boat reluctantly swung away from a towhead which she was about to knock into the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. By and by, the watchman came back and said, didn't that lunatic tell you he was asleep when he first came up here? No. Well, he was. I found him walking along on top of the railings, just as unconcerned as another man would walk a pavement. And I put him to bed. Now, just this minute there he was again, away astern, going through that sort of tightrope deviltry the same as before. Well, I think I'll stay by next time he has one of those fits. But I hope he'll have them often. You just ought to have seen him take this boat through Helena Crossing. I never saw anything so gaudy before. And if he can do such gold-leaf, kid-glove, diamond-breast-pin piloting when he is sound asleep, what couldn't he do if he was dead? An Enchanting River Scene from Life on the Mississippi, copyright 1883 by James R. Osgood and Company. The Face of the Water in Time Became a Wonderful Book a book that was a dead language to the uneducated passenger, but which told its mind to me without reserve, delivering its most cherished secrets as clearly as if it uttered them with a voice. And it was not a book to be read once and thrown aside, for it had a new story to tell every day. Throughout the long twelve hundred miles there was never a page that was void of interest, never one that you could leave unread without loss, never one that you would want to skip, thinking you could find higher enjoyment in some other thing. There never was so wonderful a book written by a man, never one whose interest was so absorbing, so unflagging, so sparklingly renewed with every reperusal. The passenger who could not read it was charmed with a particular sort of faint dimple on its surface, on the rare occasions when he did not overlook it altogether, but to the pilot that was an italicized passage. Indeed, it was more than that, it was a legend of the largest capitals, with a string of shouting exclamation points at the end of it, for it meant that a wreck or a rock was buried there that could tear the life out of the strongest vessel that ever floated. It is the faintest and simplest expression the water ever makes, and the most hideous to a pilot's eye. In truth, the passenger who could not read this book saw nothing but all manner of pretty pictures in it, painted by the sun and shaded by the clouds, whereas to the trained eye these were not pictures at all, but the grimmest and most dead earnest of reading matter. Now when I had mastered the language of this water and had come to know every trifling feature that bordered the great river as familiarly as I knew the letters of the alphabet, I had made a valuable acquisition. But I had lost something too. I had lost something which could never be restored to me while I lived. All the grace, the beauty, the poetry— had gone out of the majestic river. I still kept in mind a certain wonderful sunset which I witnessed when steamboating was new to me. A broad expanse of the river was turned to blood. In the middle distance the red hue brightened into gold, through which a solitary log came floating, black and conspicuous, 
In one place a long slanting mark lay sparkling upon the water. In another the surface was broken by boiling, tumbling rings that were as many tinted as an opal. Where the ruddy flush was faintest was a smooth spot that was covered with graceful circles and radiating lines, ever so delicately traced. The shore on our left was densely wooded, and the somber shadow that fell from this forest was broken in one place by a long, ruffled trail that shone like silver. And high above the forest wall a clean-stemmed dead tree waved a single leafy bough that glowed like a flame in the unobstructed splendor that was flowing from the sun. There were graceful curves, reflected images, woody heights, soft distances, and over the whole scene, far and near, the dissolving lights drifted steadily, enriching it, every passing moment with new marvels of coloring. I stood like one bewitched. I drank it in, in a speechless rapture. The world was new to me, and I had never seen anything like this at home. But as I have said, a day came when I began to cease from noting the glories and the charms which the moon and the sun and the twilight wrought upon the river's face. Another day came when I ceased altogether to note them. Then, if that sunset scene had been repeated, I should have looked upon it without rapture and should have commented upon it inwardly after this fashion. This sun means that we are going to have wind tomorrow. That floating log means that the river is rising, small thanks to it. That slanting mark on the water refers to a bluff reef which is going to kill somebody's steamboat one of these nights if it keeps on stretching out like that. Those tumbling boils show a dissolving bar and a changing channel there. The lines and circles in the slick water over yonder are a warning that that troublesome place is shoaling up dangerously. That silver streak in the shadow of the forest is the break from a new snag, and he has located himself in the very best place he could have found to fish for steamboats. That tall dead tree with a single living branch is not going to last long, and then how is a body ever going to get through this blind place at night without the friendly old landmark? No, the romance and the beauty were all gone from the river. All the value any feature of it had for me now was the amount of usefulness it could furnish toward compassing the safe piloting of a steamboat. Since those days I have pitied doctors from my heart. What does the lovely flush in a beauty's cheek mean to a doctor but a break that ripples above some deadly disease? Are not all her visible charms sown thick with what are to him the signs and symbols of hidden decay? Does he ever see her beauty at all, or doesn't he simply view her professionally and comment upon her unwholesome condition all to himself? And doesn't he sometimes wonder whether he has gained most or lost most by learning his trade? The Lightning Pilot From Life on the Mississippi Copyright 1883 by James R. Osgood and Company. Next morning I felt pretty rusty and low-spirited. We went booming along, taking a good many chances, for we were anxious to get out of the river, as getting out to Cairo was called, before night should overtake us. But Mr. Bixby's partner, the other pilot, presently grounded the boat, and we lost so much time getting her off that it was plain the darkness would overtake us a good long way above the mouth. This was a great misfortune, especially to certain of our visiting pilots whose boats would have to wait for their return no matter how long that might be. It sobered the pilot house talk a good deal. Coming upstream, pilots did not mind low water or any kind of darkness. Nothing stopped them but fog. But downstream work was different. 
A boat was too nearly helpless with a stiff current pushing behind her, so it was not customary to run downstream at night in low water. There seemed to be one small hope, however. If we could get through the intricate and dangerous Hat Island crossing before night, we could venture the rest, for we would have plainer sailing and better water. But it would be insanity to attempt Hat Island at night. So there was a deal of looking at watches all the rest of the day, and a constant ciphering upon the speed we were making. Hat Island was the eternal subject. Sometimes hope was high, and sometimes we were delayed in a bad crossing, and down it went again. For hours all hands lay under the burden of this suppressed excitement. It was even communicated to me, and I got to feeling so solicitous about Hat Island, and under such an awful pressure of responsibility, that I wished I might have five minutes on shore to draw a good, full, relieving breath and start over again. We were standing no regular watches. Each of our pilots ran such portions of the river as he had run when coming upstream because of his greater familiarity with it, but both remained in the pilot house constantly. An hour before sunset, Mr. Bixby took the wheel and Mr. W. stepped aside. For the next thirty minutes every man held his watch in his hand and was restless, silent, and uneasy. At last somebody said with a doomful sigh, Well, yonder's Hat Island, and we can't make it. All the watches closed with a snap. Everybody sighed and muttered something about its being too bad, too bad. Ah, if we could only have gotten here a half an hour sooner. And the place was thick with the atmosphere of disappointment. Some started to go out, but loitered, hearing no bell tap to land. The sun dipped behind the horizon. The boat went on. Inquiring looks passed from one guest to another, and one who had his hand on the doorknob and had turned it, waited, then presently took away his hand and let the knob turn back again. We bore steadily down the bend. More looks were exchanged and nods of surprised admiration, but no words. Insensibly, the men drew together behind Mr. Bixby as the sky darkened and one or two dim stars came out. The dead silence and sense of waiting became oppressive. Mr. Bixby pulled the cord and two deep mellow notes from the big bell floated off on the night. Then a pause, and one more note was struck. The watchman's voice followed from the hurricane deck. Labbard lead there! Starboard lead! Cries of the leadsmen began to rise out of the distance and were gruffly repeated by the word passers on the hurricane deck. Mark three! Mark three! Quarter less three! Half twain! Quarter twain! Mark twain! Quarter less! Mr. Bixby pulled two bell ropes and was answered by faint jinglings far below in the engine room, and our speed slackened. The steam began to whistle through the gauge cocks. The cries of the leadsmen went on, and it is a weird sound always in the night. Every pilot in the lot was watching now with fixed eyes and talking under his breath. Nobody was calm and easy but Mr. Bixby. He would put his wheel down and stand on a spoke, and as the steamer swung into her, to me, utterly invisible marks, for we seemed to be in the midst of a wide and gloomy sea, he would meet and fasten her there. Out of the murmur of half-audible talk, one caught a coherent sentence now and then, such as, There, she's over the first reef, all right. After a pause, another subdued voice. Her stern's coming down just exactly right by George. Now she's in the marks. 
Over she goes, somebody else muttered. Oh, it was done beautiful, beautiful. Now the engines were stopped altogether, and we drifted with the current. Not that I could see the boat drift, for I could not, the stars being all gone by this time. This drifting was the dismalest work. It held one's heart still. Presently I discovered a blacker gloom than that which surrounded us. It was the head of the island. We were closing right down upon it. We entered its deeper shadow, and so imminent seemed the peril that I was likely to suffocate, and I had the strongest impulse to do something, anything, to save the vessel. But still Mr. Bixby stood by his wheel, silent, intent as a cat, and all the pilots stood shoulder to shoulder at his back. "'She'll not make it,' somebody whispered. The water grew shoaler and shoaler by the leadsman's cries till it was down to eight and a half, eight feet, eight feet, seven and... Mr. Bixby said warningly through his speaking tube to the engineer, "'Stand by now.' "'Aye, aye, sir. Seven and a half, seven feet, six and... We touched bottom. Instantly Mr. Bixby set a lot of bells ringing, shouted through the tube, "'Now let her have it. Every ounce you've got,' then do his partner. "'Put her hard down. Snatch her. Snatch her.' The boat rasped and ground her way through the sand, hung upon the apex of disaster a single tremendous instant, and then over she went. And such a shout as went up at Mr. Bixby's back never loosened the roof of a pilot house before. There was no more trouble after that. Mr. Bixby was a hero that night. And it was some little time, too, before his exploit ceased to be talked about by rivermen. End of section 33